Random Inks Productions and the Credible Nerds present the Fourth Taviran, a Wheel of Time podcast. Shannon Kalhar. Time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the third age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but it was a beginning. We want to welcome everyone to the fourth Taviran, a Wheel of Time podcast from the Credible Nerds. This is episode two, and we'll be covering chapters six through ten from the Eye of the World, which is book one in the Wheel of Time epic fantasy series. And my name is Justin, and as always, I have my co-host with me, Mark. Hey guys, how's it going? We have decided to call our podcast the fourth Taviran. And that is a word that's prevalent in the Wheel of Time series, Taviran. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what that means and why we chose the fourth Taviran. It's kind of a hidden fact or not a well-known fact about how initially uh, Robert Jordan was going to have a fourth main character alongside of Rand, Matt, and Perrin. And eventually as he was writing the series he decided to cut that person out of the of the story but there was initially uh, there was going to be this fourth Taviran and if you look at the the artwork for the book Eye of the World you'll see that there's an extra person in the group and that was going to be the fourth Taviran by the time he decided to cut that that person out they had already commissioned the artwork and it was already kind of ready to go. So they decided to just ignore that in regards to the, the artwork. But um, so that's <laughs> kind of our podcast name is the fourth Taviran. We're the ones that uh, wanted to go on their journey with these main characters and be a part of the story, but didn't get that chance. And I know for me, I would have loved to have gone on this journey with these guys and been part of the story. So that's something that we decided on to call our podcast is the fourth Taviran. And we kind of represent that that member of the group that's not necessarily present, but still privy to all the events and the things going on in this epic adventure. Welcome to the Fourth Taviran podcast. <laughs> uh, have you heard of of this Fourth Taviran before? Is this a new concept for you, Mark? Uh, at least before we talked about it a week or so ago. Uh, you know, I had. The first time I really heard about it is during the signing for the last book, yeah. Yeah, book 14, uh, when we were at BYU. Uh, I, remember, I heard about it because I, I just heard some guys talking um, about something about the artwork, too. And then there were some theories that were around no one really knew. And so when I went up to get my book signed from 
Brandon Sanderson, I asked him about it and he confirmed it and he told me who it was. It was, it was Daniel, right? Yeah. Daniel. I don't remember his last name. Lewin. Um, what is it? Lewin. Lewin. Okay. Daniel Lewin. And, um, and then I was like, Oh, okay. You know? And, uh, I guess it was kind of a big thing cause they brought him back in the last book. Right. And in the last book, he, you know, he says, Oh, I mean, I, I, almost went with you guys, but I guess I was just a little too old, you know, it was kind of like a missed opportunity, which yeah. was kind of funny to me because it kind of tied into it, right? It was like a missed opportunity, but it, it made the book flow better. Uh, I'm sure, right? I'm, I wasn't there for the writing. <laughs> and so I, I always found that really witty and like a thumbs up to the whole thing. You know, like they're admitting that, yes, we had this fourth severe and yes, we didn't do it. And here's a line to, to show to show it. So th- that's that was my first um, big introduction to it. And I've since kind of like watched for Daniel, you know, like, oh, you know, is it going to say something about him? But it never really does. He's in book one. I think he's mentioned like uh, he times. shows up in when Perrin goes back to the two rivers. Yeah. There. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he shows kind of up and one of those guys he hangs up that hangs out with him. Yeah, and he's you know around, but you know you just never get the sense that he's anything more than just yeah, you know there. And so it, you know it was pretty cool that they did that um, for the whole thing. And it always makes you wonder too, like what was his role going to be? You know, what yeah. was his thing? So uh, it'd be kind of interesting, um, you know, I because I've kind of drawn drawn some parallels between uh certain people so i you know try to think you know who he would and i we just don't know enough about him to parallel who he would be like on the um you know with the forsaken or something yeah yeah so dano loon is our spirit animal i guess you could say (laughs) our spirit character um he has a few lines throughout this the series but like you said the most telling one is that one in memory of light where he's like, like you said, you know, I, I feel like I should have been with you guys or you know, whatever it was that he said. So, so that's why we call it the fourth Taviran. Um, we're looking forward to going on this journey th- through the wheel of time, all 15 books, and just kind of breaking them down and talking about our favorite parts and what things mean. Uh, there's a lot of detail in these books that will give us a lot of meat to talk about. Uh, moving on to some Wheel of Time news. Now that uh, there's a TV series that is going to be in production, uh, Amazon Studios gave the green light to have this, you know, this series written and the pilot shot. So uh, the showrunner, like we've talked about in previous shows, is Rafe Judkins, and he's active on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, definitely check him out at, at Rafe Judkins. And he tweeted out a photo recently, a couple weeks ago, that they have a writer's room and they have a table and there's nine chairs around the table. So so it sounds like there'll be nine writers and typically there's a writer per episode. So I would assume there'd be at least nine episodes, maybe 10, hopefully more. But uh, that's kind of where they're at. They're just starting and developing and writing the scripts for the episodes of the upcoming Wheel of Time season one. And also they're having a contest uh, on November 21st. Rafe tweeted out that to celebrate the start of the writer's room, we realized we have this amazing cozy fireplace with nothing hanging over it. So we thought, why not have a hearth contest 
please send us anything you think we should hang there painting tapestry grome head we'll choose the winner january 8th and i'll do a 20 minute call or skype with them dimensions for the space and the address to send your creation to will be posted on monday happy thanksgiving and happy wheel of time wednesday so that's what he wrote so if you have any type of artistic ability definitely you know look at what you can draw if you want to have a, a conversation with Rafe Judkins and the perhaps the other writers for the show uh, and send it to, to them and see if they, if they like it. Are you an artist, Mark? Is this something you'll be doing? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, me neither. Any, any art ability I had was quashed at birth. <laughs> yeah. I have no artistic ability uh, at all. But so are they only asking for drawings or can you send something that sits there? Yeah, I think like if you were a good uh, pottery person, you could probably maybe do a wolf or, you know, it just says any arts like a painting, a tapestry, a grome head. I mean, maybe you could do a grome head. Hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think any type of artwork where they could put it on the mantle, maybe. I don't think there is a mantle, but maybe display it somehow yeah okay interesting have to look into that and see see but that that sounds pretty neat that'd be a great opportunity right yeah. to talk to those guys pick their minds because you always wonder right like you know what sequences are they looking forward to the most you know uh um, how far do you think they'll deviate from the actual storyline you know just things like that you know because they, they could change things up a bit or they could keep them pretty pretty close you know kind of like game of thrones is close but not perfect but it's close enough right yeah. uh, and they've done a good job i think um what actors do they have in mind that's always a big thing to me because i think in the, a book like this where people have read it for years and years and years and they've pictured certain people in their minds and you know we've had some you know artwork uh, about certain people like you've always wondered what will these people look like? Who is it? You know, who are we getting? And that's important to me. So yeah. um, just really excited. And uh, do you, have you heard anything yet if Brandon Sanderson's at all involved in this? Uh, I haven't. I've heard that Harriet, uh, Robert Jordan's widow, will be involved at a, on a, like an executive producer type level. And I haven't heard about Brandon Sanderson yet. I assume he'd have some sort of input at some point, maybe in the last, if they get that far, you know, those last few books. Oh, they better get that far. That yeah, last battle so. would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, the last battle has to be like its own season, right? Yeah. So much happened. And I mean, it was all over the space of like three days, right? But yeah. it was, uh, well, I guess it was a bit longer than that, but uh, it, it was pretty amazing. I mean, just a lot of things happening, you know, with Matt, Rand, Black Tower. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody, right? Demon Dread. Shit. I mean, if I say a lot, right, you just start giving things away. But um, <laughs> it's just amazing. It, the whole sequence, uh, even today, like every now and again, I'll pick it up just to read. I, and I won't read the rest. I'll just start at the last battle and read it because it's so great. Yeah, definitely. All right, so that's the latest news out of the Wheel of Time TV show. Um, last episode, we we started with the prologue and went into the first uh, five chapters. 
Uh, this time, we're also going to start with a prologue. Uh, but I wanted to hold off on this prologue because it was written after the fact. Um, Eye of the World was, was um, produced and uh, printed in 1990. And this uh, prologue, it's called Earlier Dash Ravens. Um, this was written in January of, or at least it was published in January of 2002. Uh, what happened was this um, publisher, Starscape, wanted to publish the books for a younger audience, for age readers age 10 and up. So what they did is they took this first book, Eye of the World, and split it into two parts so it's a little more manageable for younger readers. And then they, Robert Jordan wrote this kid-friendly prologue and to help introduce uh, the characters to the story. So we talked about uh, the original prologue that had... Lose Theron and you know the destruction and the creation of Dragon Mounts. We both commented that it was kind of like out of place. It was just like this thing happens and then you move into the story. It was kind of confusing at first. And I think they had Robert Jordan write this prologue to kind of ease in the younger readers and the general audience a little better, a little better transition from you know what we got to the the start of Eye of the World. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was it was pretty interesting. I actually liked it. I enjoyed reading it. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be when I first heard about it. Yeah. Um. I I think the the best part about it is it it gives you a context of who everyone is. Yeah. Right. It's introduced. Egwene is it? Egwin? Egwin? Do you say Egwin? We're going to come here on the fourth of Aaron. We will come up with how we're, you're supposed to say the names. So, <laughs> um, so Egwene, uh, you know, it's kind of from her perspective. Um, we get to see a little bit of Matt, a little bit of Rand, a little bit of Perrin, but not a lot of any of them. Um, and it was just kind of a fun introduction kind of to like the small town feel, who these people are, uh, what kind of, you know, where they come from. Uh, you kind of get to see the budding romance uh, that will be happening with Egwene and, and Rand, you know, that's kind of going on and, uh, you know, what that's all about. And it's just pretty cool. Um, the the ravens in it, like it, it, as you read it, there's some ravens in it. And it was just interesting how that all went because it was like, it was mind-blowing for two reasons. One, why is only Egwene noticing all these ravens yeah and two that means you know that the dark one had an idea who it was a long time ago and maybe it was more than just these three right matt Perrin, and and uh um rand Rand. maybe there was a couple other villages under super surveillance but it makes you think that like he knew right he's like oh yeah it's right here. And we will never get to read that book about, you know, how it was determined uh, that Emmons Field was important. You know, how it was determined that, okay, we're pretty sure it's here. We don't know which one it is, but we're pretty sure. Uh, I think those were going to be in one of those three prologues that were supposed to happen with the new spring. Yeah. Uh, and then they never happened. Unfortunately, Robert Jordan died. It doesn't sound like there's any plan to ever finish those. 
Um, but I, I think that there was going to be a lot of great information in those concerning that and some other things. I know I'm getting off topic. I'm sorry. But the thing's great. I really enjoyed it. It took me like, what, 15 minutes to read, 10, 15 minutes to read. Yeah, it's pretty short. Yeah, and um, it was really, really neat. I, I really, really liked it. So we get to meet Nynaeve when, uh, you know, she's training and everything. And that was pretty neat, too. And we get to kind of see why she is the way she is. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, like you said, there's a lot of good information just in the short prologue. Um, we we learned things that were I always wondered, but it was kind of laid out in a nonchalant way as Egwin goes around and distributes water to everybody. What the setting is, they're shearing sheep for is kind of an annual thing that they do. So they're all the whole village is together shearing sheep, and we just kind of learn things here and there. Uh, we see Perrin and how he ends up being the blacksmith apprentice. That, that happens, that deal between his parents and Master Luhan was made in this prologue. Uh, we see Nynaeve as an apprentice to the old wisdom, Mistress Baron. And we also learn that Nynaeve is an orphan and her parents died while she, she was young. And so at this time, in this chapter, she's 17. And Egwene and her peers are nine, nine years old. So I was always wondering about the age. And here we get a pretty definitive answer what the age difference is between Nynaeve and Egwene and Rand and Matt and Perrin. Um, we see Matt, he's always the trickster and he's, he's even more, he's a little more immature in this <laughs> prologue. <laughs> so he, they're kind of him and Rand and some other boys are just kind of trying to hide from doing the work and they get caught type thing. So that was, that was pretty cool. Um, and then they, they all, all the boys gather around Bran Alvir, who's Egwene's dad and the mayor, and Tam Althor, who is Rand's dad. And Tam tells them a story about the War of the Shadow and the Hundred Companions and how they sealed the Dark One in, in his prison at Sheol Ghul. So a lot of, a lot of interesting things happen in this, in this little prologue. I had heard about it, but I had never read it until just recently. So worth the read, definitely. So then we'll move, we'll jump ahead to chapter six, the Westwood. And we got uh, the point of view is from Rand and they are still there. The last chapter they were attacked by the Trollocs and Tam was injured and Rand takes off with Tam through the woods. So this chapter is them is Rand going from his house, basically to the village back to uh, Emmons field. Throughout this chapter, Tam is in and out of conscious and Rand is kind of taking these back roads or the side of the road to avoid the Trollocs and the Murderald. And he's in hiding. So the whole chapter is pretty intense. You know, you're like, is he going to get caught? Are they going to see him? Is he going to make it in time? All that sort of thing. And throughout this, this whole time, Tam's talking about um, how um, he found Rand on the side of the mountain during the Aiel War. And so this is news to Rand. He hears this and he's like, what? You know, what's going on? And he kind of, he denies it at first. He's like, no, that's not true. Tam's my father and Carrie is my mother. And so he, he denies it at first, but he hears Tam say that he found the baby and they named him Rand. So he learns that he's not, you know, Tam and Carrie Althor's biological son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, <clears throat> this. like you said, it's just, a crazy part because here this kid is like he thought his dad has 
lived and breathed and never left the Emmons field a day in his life. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's finding out that, Oh, his dad was gone. He was at this war <clears throat> and he's just blown away, you know, just in such denial. But as you read, you understand like it's one of those denials where you're just trying to convince yourself, Yeah. but you know, you know, it's true. Uh, so pretty interesting. Um, it's kind of hard here because we've read all the books, so it's hard for us to know what to say. But this this is pretty important to later in the books. And uh, a lot of it comes out, and uh, it's pretty much the cornerstone of the book. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Um, and a lot of this is pertained to, if you read the white, white book at all, um, and you want to open that up, if you read a lot about the Corinthian cycle, there's not a lot in there in the white book. But that will give you a better idea what's going on um, with all of this and what that means. Yeah. This is the first hint we get of the dragon reborn basically. Right. Yeah. But we, we kind of don't know it. That's what it is. (laughs) Yeah. At this point you don't really know. Uh, I mean, as far as you know, he could have been born in uh, Salt Lake city and, in a, in a valley, right? It wouldn't have mattered. They could have said something like that. But this really is an important piece of information. Uh, and so I know it's a lot of book, but tuck it in, you know, tuck it into your pocket and, and you know, you're going to want to pull that out later because as the books go, continue, that will continue to make more and more sense as we go. Yeah. And he keeps revisiting this, this thing. I mean, they have, he actually has a conversation with Tam later on we'll talk about in a minute, but um, he keeps going back to this. You know, like, you know, how is this possible? Why is Tam my father? Who's my father? You know, and it plays out through the next couple of books. How did, how did you take that over the, you know, the next two or three books, Mark? Um, for me, it was kind of, after a while, kind of like it got a little repetitive. I, I liked the information and how it went on for this book, but then it just kind of was like, okay, we know, we know now. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean like you said it was a bit repetitive but i thought it brought across like a good thing like it kind of brought across um two different things for me okay Uh, originally after i finished the series and i looked back it really brought across the point that he is from a small town a little village uh, and from an area manetherin right that is so stubborn and stuck in its ways that even when presented with truth he's stubborn enough to still fight against it. Right. So I, I feel like that had a little bit to do with it. Like no matter what, he was going to keep trying to convince himself uh, of one thing or the other. Well, that stays true to character. Yeah. And then as I reread it, as I'm rereading this time, it kind of hit home that I think in a way he kind of always knew and he was always, um, convincing himself otherwise because uh, he's got red hair, right? Nobody else in the village has red hair. He grows up to be like the tallest guy in Emmons field and he's not even done growing, right? Like those things have to connect with him, right? At some point. I mean, I get when you're little, it doesn't matter. I'm adopted, right? Not If you've seen me, I'm brown. I'm adopted to a white family. And as I was growing up, I didn't care that I was brown and my parents were white, right? But at some point, I started noticing like, hey, I'm a different color. Like, 
my hair's black. You know what I mean? Like my sister's like, hair is blonde. Yeah. You know, and, and it starts connecting like wait, something's wrong here. You know, th- this isn't right. So I think at some point he kind of knew as well and saying it out loud all the time was a way for him to fight against that. Like, no, 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 You know, it can't be, it can't be because I don't want to change. I'm not ready for this change. I'm not ready for an adventure you know, mm-hmm. to take something from Lord of the Rings, you know, The Hobbit, you know, he's not ready for that. And so if you keep saying it enough, it'll be true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, some good insight there. So, so that's kind of the crux of this, of this chapter. They make it to uh, the village. The next chapter, chapter seven is called Out of the Woods. And again, we have Rand's point of view. And they make it, uh, Rand and Tam, make it back to Emmonsfield. And Rand wants to find the the wisdom, Nynaeve, to get uh, some healing for for his father. Uh, he goes to, goes to Nynaeve and has a conversation with Eglin as well. But um, first of all, Rand finds out that Matt's still alive. So that, he's happy about that. But he... Nynaeve comes and, and sees Tam and looks at him and she tells him basically, I can't, I can't do anything for him. He's, he's way too far gone. So Rand's just beside himself. He's like, oh, this can't happen. You know, someone needs to help me. So he goes to the mayor, uh, Egwene's dad, because the mayor knows what to do. He's like the smartest guy, and at least in the, in the village. And so he looks up to him. He goes to, to the mayor and with the mayor is Tom, the gleeman. There in the end talking, Tom brings up that maybe Moraine can can help. Bran Alvere tells Rand that, you know, Moraine is an Aes Sedai. She can heal. So Rand takes off to go find Moraine. He finds Moraine and Lan. Moraine agrees to to come help uh, and help save Tam. So they head off back to the to the inn to see what they can do for Tam. And that's basically the chapter. Mm -hmm. do you think sorry this is kind of a weird question and i've always wondered this just because of how the book ends with um you know with the tom and moiraine factor right do you think they knew each other before this because he was like oh go talk to her like he knew what she was right and i think he knew who she was uh whether who knows what that relationship was like but I've always got the feeling that they knew each other before these books started. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I'd like to know that answer. I don't think it was ever defined. Maybe as we do this reread, we'll find out. But um, I think he knew that she was Aes Sedai because she was throwing fireballs from her fingers or whatever to kill the Trollocs. So he knew he recognized that. Uh, he probably knew that before that happened because she was there with Lan, her warder. So he's smart enough to be like, Oh, she's a nice guy. But we also learned later on that Tom is more than what he seems as well. He claims to be a gleeman, but we know at some point he was around uh, certain people and learned the game of the game of his dice to Mar the game of houses. Is that, is that what it is? Oh yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. Dice dance Mar. Yeah. It's basically like, uh, we'll talk more about this, especially in the second book. Uh, but it's basically a great game. Oh, the great game of houses. Yeah. That's called the great game of houses. And it's basically a political game uh, to gain influence 
in any means necessary. And it, it, it's totally crazy. It's pretty much silliness. Uh, but when you take a step back and look at it as a whole, it's not, not much different than what we have going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's a big deal in the city that Moraine's from. And we learn later on that Tom learned it and he's a major player in the, the uh, Dice de Mar. So I think they, he was in that town, that same town that Moraine came from. But she's older than, is she older than him because she's I said I or are they about the same age? I think they're pretty roughly the same age. So she's like in her mid 40s or 50s, right? Yeah, they're about the same age. And so they're Maybe about Tom's the same. Older. Yeah. And so, because I think I remember, well, we can't, I'll give too much away. So, <laughs> but the, the big question here, and if anybody knows, if anyone's read and knows, let us know, please, because we want to know, does Tom and Moiraine know each other before? Because as you read the books, you'll see that there's a history there. Like there's more than just like, oh, we knew, we knew each other once. Yeah. Uh, I you think know. they, at least Tom knew who she was because of her lineage. Mm-hmm. So at least very least of that. But uh, so he knew he, who she was. And that's kind of the point of this chapter is we learn what an Aes Sedai is. We learn that Moraine is an Aes Sedai and what's kind of what they can do. She can shoot fireballs to kill Trollocs and she can heal. So, which mm-hmm. is a big deal in the next, in the coming chapters. Yes. And the, They'll talk more about what nice that I is if you haven't read it yet or if you're not quite sure. Keep reading, you'll learn more. Uh, I'm going to start releasing some, you know, like little, I don't know, cheat sheets about what everything is and i'm going to talk about Sedai. i'm going to talk about we learn more about the breaking and the war of 100 years and, and just different things and i'm going to release cheat sheets for that because they don't really talk about it they don't go into depth where who i said i are where they come from you know what this means what that means so i'll release some things so that you guys can read and have a little bit more context because those are things that you discover like through reading the white book reading online, et cetera. And so we want to provide that information for you guys to help make it easier for you as you read. Yeah. Yep. Is that something you're going to write or are you going to do like an audio recording for our podcast or what's your plan with that? I'll probably write it up uh, just because there's like, uh, there's enough that talking about it will get a little monotonous. Um, but, you know, like talk about Aes Sedai and their, you know, the different Aja what they mean, where they come from, where did the Aes Sedai come from, um, how long they've been around, just things like that. That way you can be like, oh, okay, well, um, so-and-so was from this Aja. Oh, that's what that means. That's what they, you know, they're kind of done, you know, motivated by or, or whatever. And so, and, and that, that'll that be um, just a contextual importance because sometimes uh, this gets a little confusing because they reference things that you just never learn about. We also see that, uh, the common folk don't trust Aes Sedai. I mean, they say this multiple times throughout the books is uh, Aes Sedai can't lie because they take certain oaths, but they don't always tell the truth either. So you have to be very wary what you agree to do when talking with an Aes Sedai. Mm-hmm. Yep. If, if you read, if you read Jim Butcher, they, they're much like the fairies. <laughs> yep. All right, so Moraine shows up to to heal Tam at the Wine Spring Inn, and that's uh, Chapter Eight, a place of safety. Moraine and Lan show up with with Rand, and they go to to Tam's room with Bran Alvir, 
and we see that Moraine, you know, kind of looks him over, see how he's doing. And she uses the one power to help heal Tam. And while it's not instantaneous, you know, he still, he gets healed, but then he still kind of needs to recover and rest and that sort of thing. So Rand is able to stay in the room and kind of observe what, uh, what she does. And while he's observing Lan and Rand talk, they have kind of have their first down to earth conversation. Uh, Lan sees that Rand has a sword and it's um, a Heronmark sword, which in this uh, story is the, the mark of a blade master. And so Lan's like, how, how does a sheep herder have this Heronmark sword? And Rand tells him, well, it's my dad's sword. He, he added, a, he bought it a long time ago. And Lan's like, oh, okay. <laughs> he doesn't know what this is. But, um, <laughs> So Lan tells him a little bit about how the heron is is the symbol of a swordmaster, and Tam he wonders how Tam you know ended up with it. Mm-hmm. When we find out too a little bit uh, more too is that there's a lot of heron mark blades out there um, that not just swordmasters carry them, but generally that's who carries them, and we kind of find out this one is important. Right. I mean, we never really know what that means, but uh, ever, but it, it's rare even among here on Mark Blades. And he said you could trace that lineage back to the uh, breaking itself, which is like 3,000 years old. So it's a really old blade. And, uh, you know, I think Rand kind of gets his first taste of like, um, oh, my dad might not just be delirious. How else would he come by this? Yeah. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool, pretty interesting, and and the the sword, I why it doesn't hold like a huge significance in itself. The story behind it becomes um, it becomes important later. Yeah. So they kind of talk about the attack. There's a lot of ravens in the village, and Moraine says that. He, she lets Rand know that ravens and, and rats are the spies for the Dark One. And so um, he kind of learns that bit of knowledge. And she tells uh, Rand that Tam was stabbed by a, a blade that was forged in the valley of Thakandar on the slopes of Sheogul. And then it won't heal unaided. And that, so that's why she has to use the power, the one power to heal him. And that kind of gives a throwback to Lord of the Rings with the the Nazgul and how uh, Frodo gets stabbed by this blade from the forged on the Mount Doom, you know, the slopes of Mount Doom type thing. There's a lot in these first few chapters. There's a lot of parallels between Lord of the Rings and uh, this story, but as the story goes on, it kind of becomes its own story and its own mythology. We also see Moraine use an Angriel, which kind of enhances the power, allows her to do more things than she normally could by herself. And we'll get into that a lot later as well. But there's this, there's these um, statues or items that uh, the Aes Sedai can use to channel the one power more than what they could do on their own. So she uses that because she's pretty tired from all the, the use of the one power that she's done over the past 24 hours. So Moraine thinks that the, the Trollocs had a purpose in their attack. And this is kind of where we start to see that Rand, Perrin, and Matt 
could have been the ones that they're after. We see that maybe there's a reason why Trollocs showed up in the two rivers way outside of the, you know, the borderlands and how did they get there? That type of thing. And we start to see that, Hey, maybe the dark one is interested in Rand, Perrin and Matt. So Moraine starts talking about how she needs to take them to Tarvalon, which is a, a safe place where all the Aes Sedai study and live and learn. So they come up with a plan to leave in at night to leave with uh, Rand, Perrin, and Matt, just uh, Moraine and Lan to, to leave with them and to find this place of safety in Tarvalon. So that's kind of the, the gist of this chapter. Uh, Tanum gets healed. They talk about the attack and how Rand, Matt, and Perrin are important, and they're going to go to this safe place at Tarvalon. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, we kind of learn a little bit, um, too, kind of what we were talking about with Aes Sedai, that not she's just dangerous. We learned a little bit about Rand, too, that it, you know, people were talking about, he's running around and just doing crazy, you know. Uh, and um, we kind of get to see the first glimpse of, of his abilities and what he can do and what a warder's all about. Um, but it's just quick stuff. We learn way more about that coming in the book, but it's, you know, good to note here that, um, it's not a fluke that they survived. Yeah. So in this next chapter is kind of a, a weird, I don't, I don't know if weird's the right word, but it's different. While they're waiting for night to come, Rand falls asleep in this room with his dad and he ends up having this dream about someone chasing him. It's kind of a nightmare. He's being chased by Trollocs. He tries to escape by jumping off this cliff. He finds himself looking at Tarvalon. Then he f- he goes to the tower. Then he finds a Murdral there waiting for him. So all this, you know, just weird nightmare dream stuff happens to Rand that he finally wakes up. Uh, um, so he wakes up and uh, there's this there's this big commotion going on right outside. Is that what's going on? And yeah. Uh, he goes out to see what's up and the villagers are just up they're ready, you know, up in arms kind of thing, you know, and everyone's scared. There's some good context here, right? Everybody's scared. They've just had an attack by creatures that people only thought existed in fairy tales, right? I mean, these, they've never seen Trollocs. No one, you know, no one knows what's going on. Um, and then next thing you know, they're, they're, you know, going crazy and they're blaming the Aes Sedai. They're blaming Moiraine. And they're like, you know, we, you know, it's no coincidence that you showed up and, you know, these people, um, you know, Trollocs came and attacked us. You know, we, we blame you. We think you're your dark friend. And, and uh, you know, they had a mind to scribble the dragon's fang on a door. And what the dragon's fang means, it's pretty much, it's like a mark of a dark friend, right? Is that kind of what it is? Yeah. And it's basically to say what a dark friend is, basically someone that serves the dark one, the evil. Like they willingly serve him for their own cause. And so so it's pretty bad to, to have that. I mean, it's really bad luck. Um, basically, we'll get you run out of town or killed. <laughs> so, uh, and there's a lot going on. Um and then Moraine finally comes in and just recants this, this story of who they were and who they are, right? And it, it's pretty cool, actually. It's a lot of good history. And she talks about that they're from a, a place called Manetherin, that all these people are descendants from 
the remaining of Menethrin, and they talk about, you know, she talks about what happened to him. Yeah, I mean, it was really neat. And, uh, you know, after the story, you know, things start to calm down. Um, some people are called out, you know, as far as, uh, you know, some of the ringleaders of this group, you know, like, you know, they're called out and pretty much brought down and saying, you know, look, she saved our lives. You can call her a dark friend, but she was here. She, you know, we wouldn't be here without her and, and Lan. And, um, you know, so she basically kind of talks her way out of anything going on. And, um, and really, I think brings a lot of perspective and a lot of kind of awe to the people because then they kind of start to learn who they are. You know, they're more than just, a group of people that live in a back country, whatever, you know, yeah. they, they come from something greater. Yeah. This is great foreshadowing for a couple books down the road. Kind of see how this plays into current events later on. So, but uh, it's a good story. I, I got all amped up and I was really interested in re- while reading this part. So it's good. Mm-hmm. And if, if you own the white book, there's a lot about Manetherin feel free to read all about it because you're not going to really learn any of it through the books. It's just something that'll be referenced uh, here and again. Yeah. And it's good to read because you read about Manetherin and Eridol, which comes into play later as well. So you kind of, you got this good history that definitely affects the story that we end up reading. So it's, it's good. So yeah, that's the end of this chapter. Uh, Well, at the end, Lan says, okay, it's time to go. So transition into the next chapter, uh, chapter 10, uh, called leave taking. And here we see Rand, Matt and Lan. They go to the stables to get their horses. They find Perrin there waiting. He's ready to go. Uh, we see that Rand has a sword. Perrin has an ax and Matt has a bow, which is telling as these weapons stay with him throughout the rest of the story. basically. Mm-hmm. So while they're there, um, they're getting ready to leave. And then Egwene walks in. She says, I'm not going, or you're not going without me. So, so she's she's part of the party now. And they're talking about, well, let's just take the Gleeman's horse so uh, Egwin can ride the Gleeman's horse. But then all of a sudden <laughs> Tom is up in the loft sleeping. He's like, oh, you're not taking my horse. I'm going with you too. <laughs> so now he's part of it. And they decide to to take Bella, which is this horse that kind of follows <laughs> The, the heroes throughout the story all the way to the last battle of the last book. So this is where Bella is introduced to the story. Mm-hmm. But, yep. And Bella, like it, it's forever. <laughs> Bella's around forever comes into big play later. Um, that poor horse uh, ran across the entire breadth of the continent like 20 times. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> back and forth. Back and forth. Yeah. That, that was either the most in shape horse in the world or the most abused horse in the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty neat too. And I've always found it interesting, like Ma Rain's frustration, like how she takes it out. You know, she's not like, no, you will not come. She's just like the will weaves is the will wheels. Like, and she continues to say that, like, and I don't know if she says this because she really understands the Corinthian cycle and, you know, that there's, there are these plans that she understands it so well that, that things are going to happen and she just is okay with that. Or if she's just saying it like as a, like, like as her personal curse, like, gosh, dang it. You know what I mean? Because, uh, you know, she says it all the dang time and she always says it. Yeah. When things like this are happening. And, um, 
but I mean, we always learn later, right? Like whenever something like that happens, it, it becomes very important down the road. Had she said no, things completely change for the worse. Yeah. Yep. So they, they get their horses ready. This is where Daniel Lewin, the fourth Taverin, didn't go with the party. He was left behind, mm-hmm. sadly. But um, So in this group, we got Matt, Perrin, Rand, the three Taverin, Land the Warder, Moraine the Aes Sedai, Egwene, who's their friend, the the boys' friend, Tom the Gleeman. And they head out in the night and they're kind of going on the north road towards the next village and they see a drag car, which is kind of a flying murdraw. So we're introduced to what a drag car is. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about them in the next episode. But um, Tom the Gleeman talks about the Age of Legends and Trollocs and Halfman and Dragcar and how all these evil creatures were created by the Forsaken. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the same thing, we'll talk more about all these creatures, Age of Legends, everything. So same thing to get context. Because it's not truly important that you know what Dragcar are. Or Midroll, or you know, you can just know that they're bad things. But it for me, I like to know like what what the heck's a Trolloc, you know, where do Midrolls come in? So we'll talk more about that, you know, as it comes in. And um, but yeah, like uh, I think the, the great part about this is the adventure starts. You know, like even though there was a prologue, I felt like that this chapter kind of ended the introduction to the book. Now we're ready to go. Uh, characters have been introduced. Uh, you know, the characters that we need to talk about, some of the characters we'll talk about for all 14 books. And um, we're, we're going, we're, we're off to the races. And, you know, and we see in the next chapters, as we'll talk about next time, that it really gets going, like a lot starts happening. And um, it, it just gets more fun after this, I feel like. So, uh, but yeah, these first 10 chapters, a little slow, but goodness it has a lot of great information for you you know don't skip these these chapters because it does bring a lot to the story yeah it's good and so we have our adventures our heroes uh, minus one really and i was kind of thinking about it i'm rereading it again this time i was surprised that Nynaeve didn't go with them Um, so i was wondering like why did she just go with them in the first place spoiler alert she ends up coming along later but um so i wonder if that was kind of an afterthought like oh i need another person another woman in the party to help balance out things or you know kind of why that decision was made Hmm. maybe it was to make up for daniel like you know i have this plan for daniel but dang it it's not gonna work but i do need somebody else yeah but i'm glad she ended up she ends up being one of my favorite characters so that's good Oh yeah. Yeah. She's, I mean, I think I did not like her for like the first 10 books. Oh yeah. I, the, my first reread, I was like, Oh, this woman drives me crazy. Yeah. Right. And, but then like the, the, like after you read the last four books, you're just like, Oh yeah, she's awesome. No, yeah. yeah, Everything I thought before was wrong. So (laughs) she's, uh, she does really great. Um, I mean, this whole group of characters, like I said, you will never stop reading about them. So get used to them, get comfortable with them, get to know everything you can about them. Uh, the more, you know, the better, you know, context you'll have later in the book. Yep. 
Yeah, so that's the first 10 chapters and two prologues. Uh, one thing we want to try to do on each episode is kind of talk about a just an idea or something that's in the overall general story. And we kind of talked a little bit about it at the beginning with Taviran. We'll be taking our information from mostly the white book, but uh, also probably online comments and things like that. But uh, so this one, we want to talk a little bit about the wheel and the pattern in Taviran and how they kind of are created. So the wheel of time is kind of spins out at Taviran. Whenever the weave from the wheel of time begins to drift away from the established pattern. So you could say, well, you know, things are starting to go off course. So I'm going to, the wheel is going to spin out of Taviran to kind of correct course, correct and make things how they should be. So whenever there's an unbalance, a Taviran shows up to bring things back into balance. And the more changes are needed to bring things into balance, uh, Taviran are produced to bring about these changes. So in this story, we have three Taviran from the beginning in Emmons Field. And so this is kind of unusual, at least from what I remember. This really hasn't happened before where there's been three Taviran. And it's kind of made a, a big deal as the story goes along that three Taviran from the same village you know, that's a big deal for a lot of Aes Sedai and a lot of people. What my question is in, in relation to all this, what was so out of balance that the wheel had to produce three Taviran at once? And one of them ended up being the Dragon Reborn, which is a major player in the history of all the ages and the Wheel of Time and everything. So, you know, what, do you have any thoughts on that? What was so out of balance that they had this had to happen? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would think for me, the out of balance uh, that it's trying to correct is that the, um, and, and I'm going to talk about things that you guys don't know nothing about. <laughs> if you we, just have, we have listeners that have read the series. So, I mean. so if you haven't read it, I apologize. If you have read it, maybe you'll agree with me. Maybe, you know, tell me to go jump through hoops or something. But uh, for me, I think that the, um, the seals have started to crumble and more and more um, forsaken are getting loose. Uh, and so the wheel is trying to correct that imbalance because these are carryovers from the second age and the second age is dead. It's done, right? We've moved from the second age to the third age. And so I think the pattern recognizes that these people are out of place in a time that they shouldn't be. And so that the, the wheel has distributed these Tavirin to help correct that, to take them out of the wheel, you know, uh, so to say, and, and we see it happen. Right? <laughs> and so, I mean, they, they directly oppose the forsaken, these three, especially later in the book. And so that, that's always been my thought with that is, you know, that was their purpose. Because, uh, uh, you know, besides the Dragon Reborn, if the Forsaken weren't there, I wonder if he could have accomplished what he did at Sheol Ghul without being Taviran, without the Forsaken presence. Yeah. Right? He probably could have. But with those Forsaken there, he definitely needed to be Taviran to accomplish it. Yeah. Okay. I often wondered if Egwene was Taviran because she shows up and things change just as much as they do for Rand, Matt, and Perrin sometimes mm -hmm. 
So like, especially later on, as she becomes more powerful and takes more on of a leadership role, people start, you know, following her without question when they wouldn't have type thing. So, but it never says that she's Taviran. It never says that, but I often wonder that, you know, maybe she is as well. Hmm. That's a good point. I've never thought about it that way yet. I can see that though. You know, I mean, uh, you can definitely, definitely see that. So yeah, it's pretty, huh. Kind of blows my mind to think about now, but yeah, she, she does a lot for the story. Uh, like, like you said, you know, especially with leadership towards the end of the books, um, it's great stuff. So, uh, but yeah, good question. I, that I'm sure there's a lot, uh, you know, why you needed three Taverne. Why, you know, was it just happenstance? They were from the same town that they grew up together. Like, would it have been effective if they didn't know each other? Um, yeah. And I mean, you hear how powerful they are too, right? Like, because it'll be mentioned later. Oh, it's more powerful than Arthur Hawkwing, and he was the most powerful Taviran ever known, right? And now you have one that's more powerful for him plus more. Yeah. And and I've always wondered too, like, what determines if you need three Taviran or four or five? Couldn't you just make one really powerful one? You know. Uh, so it's kind of a, kind of interesting, like how that all works. Uh, there's, I'm sure, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out that would love to tackle that. Why? <laughs> yeah. And then another thing that we've talked about uh, over the past few days is from the White Book. It says, "I quoted this. I copied this directly. Thus, each person, especially each of those born to Viren, must struggle to achieve his or her own best destiny." to assure that the balance and continuation of the great pattern. So here it's saying that people are born to Viren, but then we've all, I've also read comments from fan comments online who are quoting Robert Jordan saying that to Viren aren't born, they are made and discarded as the pattern sees fit. And you were saying that people aren't born to Viren, that they kind of inherit that mantle as they go, as they grow older, and as there's a need, mm-hmm. so there's a discrepancy there. And I, I wonder if anybody, if you know, or if any of our listeners know, or it doesn't even matter really. Yeah, it might be one of those things, like you said, that it don't really matter. Um, but I, I have a hard time seeing after the. I have a hard time seeing that Tavern exists after the end of the last book. Yeah, there isn't a need at that point. Right. And so if they didn't exist, and we can kind of see that a little bit, you know, with, you know, how the book ended, like it kind of ends, that the Tavir no longer around, then, you know, I think so. so I think they end, but I mean, we don't really get to read much more than uh, a little bit right after the books, you know, after the final battle. So, um, th- yeah, that's a. I don't like you said. I don't know if it matters, but I think it it'd be good to know too. You know if they're made and stuff because I really get the feeling that only Rand through the first three books is really Taveran, and we don't really see anything with the other two until then. Yeah, uh, yeah. So in these first ten chapters. Uh, we don't really see any instance of them being Taviran. Maybe them surviving the Trolloc attacks could be something. 
Yeah, I definitely think, and we didn't, we don't ever get a read like what happened with Matt or Perrin, like their individual stories. Yeah. But with, with Rand, I definitely see, yeah, there was some Taveran work going on here. Um, you know, whether, and some like Taveran work can be just a nudge or whatever, but I mean, we really see the effects later in the books. Like it's almost like the Taveran became more powerful right um as the books went on as it needed to be so you know i just wonder maybe it's a building effect as they you know kind of like what it said you know as they strive to become you know make their destiny or you know be the best they can as they get to that point the taverin comes stronger and stronger you know as they start to fulfill their role i i don't know so it's kind of a kind of interesting but yeah I, i really only get the sense that that these three weren't born with it yet you know that that at this point it kind of comes to them yeah okay yeah a lot of good things in this chapter or these chapters and a lot of good information there like you said this is the jumping off point for the rest of the story really gets going here in the next few chapters and it's a a great ride after this point Um, Mm -hmm. up to this point there's there's a couple things that were kind of annoying for me Uh, we talked about them and you kind of had similar ideas but just um, the eye said I, you know, they, or they don't always tell the truth, but they don't lie. And that gets annoying after a while. It's like, and you can tell it when they're, when they're talking, you can tell what they're doing. They're trying to split hairs and tell their version of the truth without actually lying. And it, it kind of creates issues, lack of trust in between our heroes. And that's not a good thing. If you have your main characters, your team, you don't want to have trust issues with, you know, with these people, but that's what happens due to the Aes Sedai and their inability to be straightforward. Mm-hmm. When you see it with Rand, especially there's times where he just gets so angry with Moraine, like, tell me, like, just tell me straight. I'm sick of this double talk. Yeah. Just tell me. And um, yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah. And it's almost like it's just built into these Aes Sedai or something like they don't know how to be different. Yeah. And maybe we would be the same way if we always had to tell the truth, right? Like, because sometimes I don't want people to know all the truths. And so maybe being vague or, you know, letting you think, you know, I said something even though I didn't is would, would be what you would have to do just out of normalcy. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and another issue is just kind of, we see it with the villagers, especially in the chapter where Maureen has to tell them the story about Manethrin, how they want to blame her for what happened and kind of get this sense that there's a lot of stubborn people, which can be a good thing. And we, it kind of is expanded upon in later books, but at the same time, it can also be frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just here, right? We see this with this village here. Like, I think we wrote down like the whole Sen Bui thing. It's like, oh, like I need to be in the Coplins, those guys. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's like I need to just be so little village and stubborn that I'm going to fight against the person that just saved my life. And it's really illogical. And that's why I say it's like a I think a lot of it had to do with the fear of the situation and things like that. You know, like you're looking for someone to blame. Um, but the way it's brought up is it just makes it look like it's more of a you know, that's just who they are. And that, that bugs me too, really does. And we see it throughout the book, like even with <laughs> like big cities, you know, kings and queens, lords, I said, I like, we see the same 
the same theme play out over and over. And it just, it's just like, Oh my goodness. Like, like you can't doubt these facts at this point, And yet your actions are doubtful. Like, I, I don't understand, you know, it's like you put it on a shoe a hundred times, but every time you still measure it to make sure it fits, you know, that that's kind of like, you know, like a silly thing, you know, and, and that's kind of how I feel this is. It's just like silliness, you know, some of this. So, and that, that this I, stubbornness and unwillingness to change comes up throughout the story. You know, I think, I think Nynaeve is one of the biggest perpetrators of this where, you know, she's very stubborn and she calls everyone else stubborn. That's the great ir- irony with her character. She calls everyone else stubborn, but yeah, she's probably the most stubborn one of all. So. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, like the look who she marries, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a marriage uh, set to be happy forever. So yeah, that's our, our review of the first uh, 10 chapters of Eye of the World. Uh, we want to thank you guys for listening and joining us on this journey with the episode two of this uh, fourth Tavirin podcast. If you have any questions or have any input, definitely let us know. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook under Credible Nerds. Join us there, comment, or you can send us an email, uh, CredibleNerds at gmail.com. You can also listen to all of our Wheel of Time episodes on Patreon.com slash CredibleNerds. We also have a few other shows. Uh, as nerds, we like pretty much everything. You know, DC stuff, Marvel stuff, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Middle Earth, Harry Potter, Harry Dresden, you know, everything nerdy. So check out our other shows that we also do. But uh, we'll be focusing a lot on Wheel of Time over the next few months as we read through these books. So uh, if you have any input, definitely send us an email. Reach out to us on social media. If we get a question or a comment, we'll probably read it on air, you know, read it in our podcast and, and talk about it. Uh, we like input and comments and that sort of thing. So definitely let us know. But uh, We want to thank you guys for, for joining us here. I don't know, Mark, do you have any last minute thoughts on uh, chapters six through 10 in this Ravens prologue? Just get ready to go. I mean, uh, the book I think picks up after this and, uh, um, it doesn't seem like it will for a little bit, but it really does. Just just stick with it. I'm telling you, if, we, if you can get through these this first little bit, it's going to be so worth it. You'll love this journey. Um, I've loved it. I love to revisit it. So um, just uh, keep going and get to know the characters and and ask us questions if you have questions. I mean, I think one of the worst things for me was I didn't have anyone to ask questions to except for Justin, who was also reading it. So he had the same questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it didn't help either one of us. But, yeah, just keep with it, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have fun. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. See you guys.